Gardner Campbell joins me to talk about engaging learners on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed, number 107. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. If you have not heard the name Gardner Campbell before, allow me to introduce you to an absolutely phenomenal educator. He is an associate professor of English and the special assistant to the provost at Virginia Commonwealth University. He's also served there previously as the vice provost for learning, innovation, and student success, as well as the dean of the Innovative University College. Before coming to VCU, Gardner was Senior Director for Networked Innovation in the Division of Technology Enhanced Learning and Online Strategies at Virginia Tech, where he also served as Associate Professor. And prior to that, he was the Founding Director of the Academy for Teaching and Learning at Baylor University, as well as Associate Professor of Literature, Media, and Learning in the Honors College. I am so pleased to be welcoming him to the show to talk about engaging learners. Gardner Campbell, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Hi, Bonnie. Thanks. Good to be here. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. We are going to start out the episode by going back in time. And we're going to go back to (laughs) when e-learning was first invented, or at least the term was first coined. And we used to say that, that those online courses were interactive if we clicked our mouse on a little arrow. You remember those days, yes? I do. (laughs) You remember them well. Well, today we do a lot of talk. There's a lot of talk in the media. There's a lot of talk amongst faculty about engaging our students. What part of the talk about engaging our students is the equivalent to saying that clicking on a course is interactive? Oh, dear. I'm afraid this is going to elicit a little bit of sarcasm from me. So everybody just kind of hold on. Uh, We're doing so well with interactivity, Bonnie. For example, uh, not only can you click on links, but you can watch a movie of somebody speaking in a large room. Mm. Now, that's a real advance. Not only that, you can have a separate window with bullet-laden PowerPoint slides accompanying the video of somebody talking in a room, a big room. And not only that, you can pause it and take a multiple-choice test. So... You know, what lovely interactivity. It's all kind of part of the same clicking on links idea. And I think it's because interactivity for most people simply means there's something to do to follow along, which is not exactly what I would think of as interactivity. And what are the ways in which we talk about engaging our students in our teaching that are are actually not real demonstrations of engagement? I think there's a thought that if we are getting responses from students of any kind, that there is engagement that's happening. And I guess in a way you could say that. I mean, it is probably more interesting to click on multiple choice tests every 10 minutes 
than it is uh, simply to watch uh, a lecture that goes on for an hour, even if you can uh, play it back at double speed. But I, I think that there's far too much focus on simply uh, what I would call a stimulus response uh, kind of paradigm. And in the meantime, our students are sitting there with thoughts and dreams and distractions and hopes and what they just ate for lunch, uh, which has made them sleepy or made their stomach rumble or whatever. I mean, there's, there's a rich context of lived experience in many ways, a very high bandwidth context that we could draw on as we're together to be able to empower and strengthen interaction, uh, which doesn't always mean that everybody's talking at once. I think listening can be a very active process and that following along can be very active or even interactive without the person who's listening, never the, uh, you know, in necessarily responding in any way other than kind of bearing down on the listening. But for me, the stimulus response paradigm governs most of what we think of as interaction uh, in an electronic format. And that's just a very impoverished view, how people are in rich communication contexts when they're online or face to face. Would you share a memory of me from your teaching that you just think so fondly upon because you just think now that that was true engagement? That's that's a very interesting question. So I'll, I'll give you one example that's an extreme example because it's certainly not possible uh, on a, a daily basis. Uh, it was a very special experience in which I was uh, leading a group of students in a study abroad in Bath in the UK in 2003. We had been on this five-week summer course together. It was called Rock Soul Progressive Transatlantic Crossings in Popular Music, 1950 to the Present. And we started with Patti Page and the Tennessee Waltz and ended up with U2 and beyond. I, I, I can't remember the, the most recent, I think Radiohead was in the mix there. And, you know, we went right up to the present. And we had lived through five weeks together. And each of the classes was interactive. And I think, uh, at least it felt to me, as if there was a high degree of engagement not just because everybody listened to popular music, but because we had read things together, we were in a fairly small and contained and exotic setting. We were analyzing music in, in ways that I think were, were new for most people. And we were learning from each other just by paying attention to the way each of us experienced music and the context in which we experienced music and how we would even talk about what it was we were hearing. So all of that was very interesting, and we did that for five weeks. There were field trips, including a great weekend in London, where we went to the townhouse studios, and one of my students uh, sat down at Sir Elton John's favorite piano and played some Fiona Apple that she had memorized from her own piano lessons, and then uh, going to uh, Brighton and going on a tour that retraced the steps in the movie Quadrophenia featuring the music of the who and on and on. So all of that was highly engaging, but the highest moment of engagement was in the moment where we all walked up on top of Salisbury Hill, the last day of class. Salisbury Hill is celebrated in a famous song by Peter Gabriel on his first album. And it's a song about an Eagle flying down to take him home. 
when he had come to a crossroads in his own career and was now preparing to go out as a solo artist. So we were at a crossroads too. We were in a physical setting that was new to most of us where we might not ever be together again in that way. We had been through all of these lived experiences together in an unusually intense fashion. And the, the moment of peak engagement was a moment of reading and silence. We had all brought books with us from the course and read aloud to each other bits of the books that had meant something in particular to each of us. And then I turned to them and I said, that's your life down there because we were overlooking the city of Bath. That's what we lived together for the last five weeks. Let's look at that now and uh, reflect on it together in silence on this windy hill. And I, I've never had a more engaged moment myself. And from what the students reported, it was pretty magical for them as well. So that's an edge case. As I say, you know, you, you can't make those memories every day, except I think within that experience, there are certain kinds of principles, I would say, that you can isolate or identify to begin to get to deeper kinds of engagement. And I'm not the first one to have thought of these things by any means. One of my favorite education writers uh, who sadly passed away a couple of weeks ago, a fellow named Jerome Bruner, uh, talks about these kinds of things pretty consistently throughout all of his writing. And they have to do with uh, paying very close attention to context, keying off of pre-existing interests and bringing them together into wider spheres of inquiry. They have to do with the power, the power of really attentive listening. They have to do with a, a deep kind of personal communion and caring about each other, which can never be manufactured, but it can certainly be encouraged and modeled within the instructional setting. It has to do with a kind of daring and imagination to go beyond a transactional relationship, either with the content or with each other. It has to do with a heightened sense of occasion and an awareness that for me brings a kind of humility with it, that at any moment, something you learn could change your mind about a lot of things. It could fill your life with meaning and new direction, or it could send you back into a really dark period of soul searching, that, that learning is an enormously powerful and eventful kind of experience. And that we need to be prepared for that. We need to be humble in the face of that. We need to be excited and, and be answerable to uh, that occasion. Uh, and to the extent that's possible, and I think it's almost always possible to a substantial extent, whether or not you're sitting on Salisbury Hill. Those are the things that I, I always prized about my own learning experience as a student and try to encourage and support and empower uh, within the classes that I, I teach now that I'm an adult and I'm the teacher. One of the things I think many, perhaps all of us do, is these rituals when we are in a classroom Many of us will play music, and I have had such delightful times discovering what musical history the students sometimes share. One of my favorite memories was playing 
build me up buttercup and realizing that 99% of the class could sing that song every word and did that day. It was really fun before class. And then there's one guy who was not from the United States who's going, what is this song? And what are you all singing? It was great fun together. But even if people don't play music before class, there's some kind of a ritual there. I was just reading yesterday about someone who makes sure that they greet everyone as they come in. Some people like to sit in the back of the classroom. There's all these rituals that we do. And of course, there's rituals that students do. I talk sometimes about, you know, why did you come in and sit in these rows of seats instead of coming up and sitting in this nice comfy chair in the front of the classroom? We talk about those social norms and that sort of thing. But online... I don't see as many of those rituals, or at least I don't know that we collectively have had as many conversations about rituals that might, as you said, tie into these key interests and help people pay this close attention to context and have that deep power of attentive listening. What comes to your mind when you think about effective rituals that we might create or recreate in an online environment to do some of these things? That's such a great question. And I, I agree with you that those rituals can have just enormous power. They bring what Seymour Papert calls a kind of a, an intentional microculture into the particular learning community that you're engaging with uh, at any given moment. And it can be anything from everybody gets a nickname to exactly the kinds of things that you're describing with playing music. It's a great story about that foundations track, by the way. That's just a great, great story both for the people who knew it and for the person who didn't. Those are both opportunities, right? But just as there are many things in face-to-face classrooms that are just kind of soul-sucking and transactional, there are just exactly the same kinds of encounters in, in online learning. And I, and I think that, if anything, the, the fact that we can get kind of numb in the online medium because it just looks like a picture on a flat thing that we're looking at We need to be even more mindful in that distributed environment of rituals that that might bring us together. I have one example that I can talk about along those lines, which is a ritual. uh, That was actually actually a couple of rituals that I, I did in those new media seminars for many years. And they had to do with, one, what I called an embedded librarian who was on the Twitter back channel during the class, but was not located in the class. She was overdoing her work in the library and just paying attention to the hashtag for the class. Uh, and the other was the APGAR test that I would give my students at the beginning of every class meeting. So first, the embedded librarian. Her name is Ellen Philgo. I did another version of that with a librarian called Rebecca Miller at Virginia Tech, but Ellen seemed to have a particular knack for it probably because she uh, had uh, a lot of sensitivity to music. Ellen seemed to, to, to get the vibe real, real fast. And what would happen is we would come into the class and we were using a Twitter back channel that the students would use. I wouldn't see it. I didn't display it. For me, the display of the back channel can be a little distracting if it's up in the middle of the room, but if it's on everyone's laptops, not so much. And so because I wanted them to use that back channel creatively among themselves and in a way that was also interacting with our embedded librarian who was in another building but following the channel, I would do a little thing at the beginning of class with that inevitable moment where everyone has to turn on their laptops and get on the net and is the wireless working today and all the rest of that. 
And I would do all of that in a ritual that I would simply say, okay, everybody boot up, log on, and say good morning to our guardian librarian. And it became uh, just this little way of kind of like a little seance, you know, in a way we would all kind of get our computers on and figuratively speaking, kind of link hands and do our little, you know, greeting that would bring the presence of this ghostly librarian into our midst. And it was great because she would be ready and she would always say good morning and there would be a little interchange there. And sometimes she would do very clever librarian things like saying, oh, uh, you know, Alexis, I read your blog. It was very interesting and blah, blah, blah. And that would get us started. It would be a little kind of now we're on the net. Now that part of our class is fully present. And the other ritual I would do is this uh, APGAR test that I devised because I was so inspired by the story of Virginia APGAR and her test for newborns, her checklist really, that would score them on a scale of one to 10 around various aspects of their physical condition to be able to see very quickly which infants would need interventions uh, to be able to, to wake up and live and thrive and which ones were, were already in pretty good shape and you could just say, okay, on we go. I was so impressed by that story and so taken with her personality that I thought, well, I wonder what that would be like if I wanted to encourage healthy classes. And I wasn't so interested in each individual response, though I was asking them to fill these out individually, as I was interested in what does this say about the class as a whole on this day. So in many ways, it was the same kind of thing as with the embedded librarian. I wanted a moment, a ritual that would also have some electronic affordances that would give them the opportunity to, to bring their minds into the sphere of mindfulness we wanted for this class. And I would deliver the test and they would put it down on paper and score themselves. Then they'd hand it all in anonymously and I'd do this big thing up at the front of the room where I would enter the scores in a Google Doc and do a mean, median, and mode and then be very theatrical about whether it was gonna be a good day or a bad day. But it was interesting because while it wasn't fully online, it was something that I, I think is also a nice thing to do online, which is to try to do things that are not simply about one-to-many or one-to-one, but many-to-many. -many. Thinking of this moment when we're doing something in a synchronous fashion, understanding that it really is a web we're encountering, not just a television station, set to a particular channel. I think that's really the thing that gets missed uh, most often is a very deliberate, intentional, mindful use of what to me is one of the great strengths of any kind of online uh, experience, which is this weird kind of many-to-many -many thing that happens where you feel that you're in a network with, with multiple possible interconnections and that they can, if you're, if you're good at it, be mutually reinforcing and really make the experience a lot richer. One of the challenges that I see a lot of faculty having sometimes when they try to introduce even the most simplistic kind of collaboration, all right, let's work in a group project and let's put a Google Doc together and we can you can collaborate together, is to make this assumption that today's traditional undergraduate students are 18 to 22-year-olds just come to college knowing about these many-to-many -many relationships and that they're predominantly about knowing the technology versus knowing the relationships and how, how they might 
flourish in, in such a, a work together. How do you respond, I guess, to faculty who think this is some generational thing or or some, once I know the technology, if, if only I could know what buttons to click, then I would suddenly miraculously be this great networked learner? Yeah, what a great question. I think that lots of times because people are are not quite getting at exactly the depth of the kind of question you're asking, they're pretty much sitting ducks for vendors who will say, well, and now it's, it's like watching lectures, but in 3D with bigger technicolor PowerPoint. And, and it's like, no, 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 that's, this is, this is what Scott McLeod calls the McLuhan mistake, which always happens when you shift into a new medium. Uh, the classic example is, well, gee, now we have movies, so we'll put the movie camera in the middle of the auditorium and film the play. Well, you can do that, but it gets really a lot more interesting when you edit, which doesn't have any equivalent really in a theatrical production. I guess you can think of scene changes that way, but it's not anything you do after the fact. Oh, and, oh, and you can move the camera. Oh, that's really interesting. That would be like people getting up and walking around during a performance so they could see, uh, you know, Hamilton from different seats. And that would be kind of chaotic, although, People do that at the Grand Ole Opry, which adds another kind of many-to-many dimension to that experience. So I think, for me, the answer is that no one really has a a deep understanding of network literacies in this telecommunications environment we live in now because it's too new. I think that many times young people have better approximations of things that we can, because their experience is so heavily mediated in these uh, networks, that we can draw on to help make them more mindful of the networks they're in. But again, they're, they're not necessarily thinking of it in those terms. And it, uh, even though it's something that um, is maybe more foreign uh, to older people who are faculty and staff, I think we're on more of a level playing field than we think because this idea of network literacy, which is something Howard Rheingold talks about really beautifully. And I'll come up with a mini recommendation right now for a major book that's called Smart Mobs, mm-hmm. where Howard explores some of ideas of network literacy. And he does it in lots of videos as well that are, are really worth seeking out online. You know, I don't think we really know what that's like yet. I don't think we really have great ways to think about it, just as I don't think We had great ways of thinking about print culture where many, many people would be literate who were never literate before, and the circulation of texts would take on such profusion and intensity. I don't think we really knew what to think about that for about 200 years. So kind of early days, I I think that younger people who are in that environment, even if they're not aware of it, may be able to come to certain kinds of realizations a little faster, but they're not inevitable. And most schooling, sad to say, doesn't really encourage those kinds of questions or take advantage of the affordances. And and I think we had better. I hope we will. You talked a bit about our customary one-to-many kinds of engagements that we attempt as faculty. What are some of the ways we should be stretching ourselves to develop more skills around many-to-many? One of my favorite things to do is to have an absolutely unprompted discussion forum in a congenial environment, by which I do not mean 
the way discussion forums are set up in most of the learning management systems I'm familiar with because they're ugly and they don't look anything like the internet and no one would ever voluntarily do that if they weren't assigned it. So I think, and this is partly just my own experience, but there's a, there's, there are enough discussion forums on the web that I think I'm pretty safe in saying that it is a very powerful way of thinking about many-to-many. So I'll give you a couple of examples. I used to use discussion forums in my film studies class because I really did want people to have the opportunity to kind of hang out and talk about movies outside of class. And I never or rarely ever started a discussion thread. What I would do is say, you'll actually reinforce your learning and have more fun if you talk about movies and what we're learning on this discussion forum. I'd like you to post twice a week. Go. And then I would kind of remind people, and sometimes I would do it, you know, with various impressions of crazy teachers from various movies, including Mr. Hand in <laughs> Fast Times at Ridgemont High, who's a, a personal model for me. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, he's the immortal Mr. Hand. So, you know, I would do that. And, and I think, you know, because it was movies and people wanted to talk about that kind of stuff anyway, so it kind of was a natural plug into their interests. They would just take off. And, you know, I would notice that if I came in very strongly or sometimes at all on a discussion thread, that it would tend to chill the discussion a little bit because people have a certain idea of the kinds of ways you behave when, uh, you know, uh-oh, teacher's here. And I'm a pretty congenial teacher, but you can't help being that authority figure. And that can be a good thing, but it can also be a conversation stopper. I also noticed that when they were talking about things on their own, they said very interesting things, and I would learn stuff, which I always love. So I was like, huh, that's interesting. Then I switched from the LMS discussion forum to one that is a very widely used open source uh, discussion forum on the internet called PHPBB. And I was able to do that, there's kind of a long bit here, but I was able to do that because I got tired of using the LMS, which I thought was a very ugly and harmful thing, still do, and I uh, found out that for $6 a month, I could buy space on a web hosting service and have access to all these amazing web things that I could install with one click. This is kind of old news now, but in 2005, I thought, or 2004, I thought, wow, this is kind of an amazing thing. So I clicked and installed PHPBB, which is kind of a bear to administer, but I'm kind of handy with it. So I, I figured it out. And then the first day that the forum went online, a student wrote me and said, oh, could you please put the Solaris skin on this? Because I really like that one. So I said, sure. I had no idea what he was talking about, <laughs> only a vague idea. But I Googled it, found out what it was, got the instructions to install it and, you know, snicker snack. I had actually responded to a student's request to customize the way the learning environment looked to him. I thought, oh, that's very nice. And then I set off and just let them do their discussion forum thing. The rate of participation doubled. That is, there were twice, as number, twice the number of posts in those sections as there had ever been in any of the learning management system forums because they look kind of like email inboxes. They don't really look like many-to-many. And the other thing that happened was that people's creativity was unleashed. So some people would actually put avatars up that would be little animated GIFs. One student I remember did this with, in a very eerie way with the face of James Dean, which would, you know, you'd be looking at him 
And then suddenly his eyes would shift to the right. Very spooky. <laughs> and I didn't say, I didn't say, oh, everybody, please find an animated chip. That, you know, I didn't say anything. I just said, I want you to have an avatar. If you don't know how to have an avatar, here are the instructions. And if you're, if you're puzzled, ask somebody in the class. And I want you to post twice a week. Then I found out that this particular forum uh, affordance let people create polls for each other. Well, this is very standard stuff. But it was not that way in Blackboard. Uh, you know, why would you want to have pretty things and avatars and make it look like many to many and let you? I mean, there's this idea that in the end, it's all about the teacher asking a question and grading the answers that he gets back. But in PHPBB, the students could poll each other. And so the, the, the moment where I said, ah, ha, 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 this is a brave new world, I'm glad to be in it, was when one student created a poll after we had watched Citizen Kane. And the poll was, when in the movie did you first realize what Rosebud was? Mm. And then constructed like six or seven different possible answers. And it was great fun. And everybody just, you know, piled in and gave their answers. And it was just, you know, a little Citizen Kane party, which I'm all fine with. And then I thought, now, what have I just witnessed? I've witnessed a many-to-many -many interaction around a prompt in the form of a fun, but actually quite revelatory quiz created by a student. Oh, huh, I guess that's what they mean by learner-centered education. I would like some more of that, please. That was just a very powerful uh, experience for me. Great, great fun to see, but also really set me off on a quest to, to be able to, to do more of those kinds of things. And a number of those experiences have been inside that idea of a discussion forum. The other example was a few years after that, when I had a discussion forum for an introduction to literary studies. And again, same technique. I did not start the threads, except in rare instances. And I would participate every now and then, but, but typically not very much, very sparingly. But I would constantly remind the students that this was not busy work. It would reinforce their learning. They should get in there. And they should do some of that lovely many-to-many -many stuff. And one student started a thread called A Little Place to Sit. And the purpose of the thread, according to the student, was to ask the question, do the things we're learning in class ever connect with what's happening in your life outside of class? Well, you can imagine, that's just like catnip to a teacher. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, of course, if I had asked a question like that, they would have all been thinking, well, I don't know. Will Dr. Campbell like my answer? Is this a good answer? Maybe he'll think this is too trivial or I don't want to tell him what's going on in my business or whatever. But instead, this thing just took off. The first answer was, oh, hell yes. And it just went on from there. And the thing about that thread was that it ran with some of the participants, not all, but, uh, but a few, for about five months after the class was over. Mm. Wow. And, and yeah, I mean, it was, it was like, okay then. And of course, I was still in the forum and so could see these things happening. And then every now and then, they might ask me something and I might respond. But it was just so beautiful. And I've always thought that that's just an extraordinary thing when a class gels like that. And in a perfect example of the kinds of network effects and many-to-many -many experiences that we could be seeking out and refining and inventing and celebrating in the way we think about online learning, but typically 
we do not because we we just can't imagine it, I guess, or maybe most of my colleagues don't hang out on discussion forums, but might be worth it. Yeah, I think sometimes what I observe too is the discomfort with the lack of control. And for many of us, that's invigorating where you think, oh my goodness, I didn't even imagine that you could think about it this way, or I hadn't thought about the poll for Citizen Kane. What a wonderful way. But but that is scary when what if what we were taught about teaching means teaching equals control and predictability and structure. No, I think it's a good point. I think that control can mean several things. It can mean that I'm not being responsible as a teacher unless I grade and evaluate every single thing that the students are doing in response to the learning. I certainly understand that. I had a colleague once who really was, I think, sincerely afraid that if she let students in her biology class just talk amongst themselves, they would simply perpetuate error. Now, I think that if you set the environment up in a good way and intervene sparingly when you think you really need to do it, that there are ways in which the environment can become self-correcting and actually start to boost the collective intelligence, not just be people leading themselves out of ignorance into even more error. But she didn't think so. And so she never even tried. And that, to me, is the real shame. I mean, at least give it one or two tries. I do know some colleagues who've tried it, but they feel like they need to start every thread because otherwise the topics will be trivial. But I've never found that to be the case. And the other thing I would say is I, I'm not really giving up control. I still put the syllabus together. The discussion forum is by no means the only thing we're doing in the class. I set tests, I grade papers, I steer discussions in fruitful ways uh, when we're face-to-face. But it is a place where the many-to-many and unscripted aspect of the students interacting let, let the experience breathe and brings things out that would, would otherwise be lost. And I found that the freedom to learn, as Carl Rogers has called it, that students find when they're in that kind of carefully prepared but unscripted learning environment, one that I control because I did do the careful preparation but do not control on a minute-to-minute basis in terms of specifying what they're supposed to be doing or saying, that kind of freedom enriches everything. It enlivens everything that happens in in the whole class. So so I think it's very valuable. And I, I think it really is about exploring other ways of influencing or shaping or focusing the learning experience Besides a kind of, you know, minute, granular kind of control over every aspect of what goes on, which is an illusion anyway, because we know when they leave class, they're going to talk to each other and you're not chaining their minds to the desk. And so, you know, why not, why not turn some of that human spirit to good use and, and let a little bit of that fresh air in, as well as the things that I, I do agree need to be uh, more tightly controlled and scripted. If it was possible to actually know all of one's discipline, which I can't fathom, but let's let's set up that hypothesis there at the beginning, you still wouldn't know everything about your students and how they're experiencing the learning or or what they're curious about or 
how your attempts at teaching this discipline that you've truly mastered, because <laughs> it's for me, I'm just always thinking that collectively, there's no way that any group of individuals, when we bring them together, there's no way I could possibly know more than them. So it's, that's that fun thing to let it be free and say, yeah, there's going to be things that I don't know about, but still having the confidence that as you say, I'm where my value here is coming up with these ways of shaping the learning experience and, and building of that community of learning together. No, I think that's exactly right. And most uh, people who have done work in the history of ideas or the history of thought, I think about Stephen Johnson's really interesting book called Where Great Ideas Come From, recognize that great ideas of all kinds come from all kinds of people at all stages of their knowledge. There are some great ideas that are easier for an expert to have There are some great ideas that are forever closed off from the expert because he or she is simply too conditioned by prior learning. And even more than that, there's the idea that a great idea can come by putting two things that are apparently unrelated next to each other. Mm. So if if somebody's making a connection between, you know, Milton and, you know, Patty Smith, which actually happened in my Milton class last time. That's great. You know, suddenly the field of Milton studies has expanded in significant ways. And all of us may be able to have better, more interesting and fresher ideas than we would have if that if that combination hadn't emerged in our conversation. And it is true that the connection between Patty Smith and John Milton may not be as important for Milton studies as the connection between John Milton and, oh, let's say, the philosopher Nicholas of Cusa, or the way Shakespeare influenced him, or or any of those things. But, you know, there's time for lots of different things. And if the connection feels lively and inspiring to somebody, they're going to naturally want to know more. And I think it's a mistake for teachers to say, as sometimes we all will, oh, that's very interesting, but we don't have time for that now. Because as soon as you do that, the message you send is, I don't care how creative and interesting your remark is. It's not what I think is most important right now. Therefore, I'll kindly ask you not to say it. Mm -hmm. And that's just, it's so disappointing. And it does make people think that Milton is about sitting up straight and looking at the teacher at all times, (laughs) which I can assure you it is not. This is the time in the show where we each give a recommendation, and mine is going to be for people to go look at the links I will post in the show notes on the great VCU bike race book, and I will quickly read with inflection, I might add, the description and then ask you to share a little (laughs) bit more. It is a networked multimedia transdisciplinary exploration of the event that is the 2015 UCI, that's the Union Cyclist International Road World Championships. VCU faculty have focused their energy, enthusiasm, and unique expertise on this event to create an array of energizing learning opportunities. What can you tell us about the great VCU bike race book and why we should all go look at it? Well, I, you, you read that description extremely well, I have <laughs> I to thank say. You. <laughs> you know, I even have a podcast. <laughs> very well. Yes, there you go. I, I see I am speaking with a professional. And, yes. <laughs> uh, that's, that's, that's it. That's great. No, I, those are not words that were chosen idly. 
that kind of opportunity has long been one of my kind of dreams about what a school might do. And I've had various ways of dreaming about it, but this particular one, it really did involve luck, preparation, and ambition. And it was luck because it just so happened that the bicycle race, the course of it was going right by the main arts and sciences campus of uh, VCU. So it was right next to us. Preparation because uh, the folks who were involved in this project, which included my colleague, the Vice Provost for Community Engagement, Kathy Howard. It involved people from Student Affairs. It involved a crackerjack team of what you might loosely call learning technologists. I would call them awesome learning experience designers in what we called the Academic Learning Transformation Laboratory. And of course, the faculty who were game uh, all came together with what I might add was a superb project manager named Amy Adkins. It was a biology, psychology postdoc, to say, you know, we're ready. We can do this, given the opportunity. And then the aspiration was, how can we make this as striking a thing as possible? And so I came up with the idea of calling it the great VCU bike race book. Uh, first of all, because I like things that are great as opposed to good. And I always liked uh, titles like the great Gatsby, the great McGinty, the great this, the great that. As soon as it comes out, you feel like it's the greatest show on earth. It's mm -hmm. this, this moment of, of real promise and you're, you're going to have a good time. That was part of it. Also, the idea that it would be a book that would be crowdsourced across many different writers, meaning primarily the students themselves, was very appealing to me in part because I had long admired this book called Hacking the Academy that in its first iteration was compiled in about a week it was, uh, I may not get all the history right uh, off the top of my head, but there was a conference and they all got together and they said, hey, what if we wrote a book like really fast, like now? And so everybody just started writing stuff or recommending things they thought would be good to include. And at the end of the week, they had this crowdsourced book, which was marvelously appropriate to this idea of hacking the academy. And then over stages, they would curate to try to get the best of the best. So I was really interested in this idea of an aggregate crowdsourced kind of meta document across many disciplines of which, and the many disciplines was really kind of Kathy Howard's idea, which I thought was exactly right. And was very grateful to her for, for, for pitching that in there. And then having all of those things be published to the web as they were happening, be curated during the event in a kind of an ongoing news magazine, which was part of the project I worked on uh, as an individual, and then have that content uh, present in an aggregate way and then curated through successive stages until we would get it into a form that we would say, okay, this is the best of the best, and we're going to put it in the library's scholarly repository as a kind of a book that we all wrote together. We didn't quite get all the way to the scholarly repository, but we did get to the curation part. And we did get some really extraordinary moments along the way in which students really did feel like that the work they did was something that could matter on a potentially global scale. And that was part of the co-creation of knowledge across this institution of higher education. So it was great. It really kind of inverted 
mm. the knowledge creation relationship. And it was about a cool event and lots of surprising things happened. And it was all up on the web to be shared with the world. And it was across many disciplines and the faculty loved the experience and the results we got back from the student assessment were very, very positive in ways that were just very affirming. And, and I think that I think the experiment could be generalized into other contexts as well. And I'm, I'm eager to try again sometime. So we'll see if that opportunity emerges. What do you have to share with people today? Oh, so many recommendations. I don't know. I just got a really lovely quadraphonic set of Chicago's albums from its first to the, to the 10th one they did. And it's mm -hmm. kind of fun to hear old music in new ways and hear things you've never heard before. But I don't suppose that's terrific, terrifically related to student engagement. So I would say that my recommendation today would be for people to feast themselves upon really any of the writing that, that is nearby or they can get to uh, by the late Jerome Bruner. I would recommend in particular a book called Essays of the Left Hand, which is just full of wonderful stuff, including an essay called The Act of Discovery that's just marvelous. There's another one called Toward a Theory of Instruction that's also been just an extremely uh, strengthening and nourishing book for me for, for many years. So my recommendation today is get yourself to some Jerome Bruner, B-R-U-N-E-R, and prepare yourself for a wonderful experience. And of course, I have the introduction to one of my favorite Chicago songs stuck in my head, which will be there for the next four hours. But it's a much better soundtrack to have than, say, the Paw Patrol soundtrack that my kids love to listen to, or my son is now in love with the first song of the Star Wars soundtrack. So it's going to work for me here. <laughs> I like it. Well, thank you so much for your time today and just your time in building all this community for engaging our students and really challenging ourselves to do better and to take those risks that we need to in order to create real engagement. Well, it's my pleasure. And I have to say, as the credits roll, that none of this, you know, I, I try to carry on the same kind of intensity and transformative qualities that I felt with my best teachers. Uh, sometimes folks are criticized for trying to teach the way they were taught. And in my case, I should be so lucky mm. to be able to teach the way my best teachers taught. They, they taught me so much and were, were just amazing influences. So thanks for the opportunity to talk, Bonnie. It's been great. What a pleasure it was to speak with Gardner Campbell today. And just as a heads up, we actually recorded two episodes today as I record this. And the next episode with him will be airing on July 28th. And so you can look forward to hearing that episode and us discovering more from this great thinker in higher ed. And thanks to all of you for listening. I just have grown to appreciate this community of individuals who come together and we're just always seeking to facilitate learning better through a lot of different creative lenses. Today was just one example of that. Again, to access the show notes from today's show, you can go to teachingandhighered.com slash 111. 
And if you want to expand the community even more and get to have the opportunity to engage with even more people, the best way to do that is to write a review or give the podcast a rating on whatever show it is you use to listen to the show. I always appreciate those. And they really are through the algorithmic magical wonders of iTunes, the best way to get the word out about the show. Uh, Thanks so much for listening. and I'll see you next time. 